Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. In today's interview, I speak to Irene Molodsov, CEO of SEA Partners UK. Having started her career in manufacturing, Irene quickly found her calling in management consulting and moved to KPMG to pursue her passion. When KPMG was sold to Atos, Irene and her co-founder decided the time was right to strike out on their own and do what they loved, helping organizations deliver major business transformation programs. This led them to launch Molten, which was subsequently acquired by SEA Partners in 2016. On joining SEA Partners, Irene took on the role of CEO of their UK business, continuing to build on the great work that she'd begun at Molten. In this conversation, we dig into a whole range of topics, including how Irene fell in love with consulting and how she made the decision to take the leap from a comfortable career at a global firm to launching her own firm in Malton. Irene's take on diversity and inclusion in consulting and what the industry needs to be doing to help improve it and the future of the consulting industry as a whole, why Irene believes it needs to be regulated and the importance of what SEER partners have termed Consulting 4.0, the next generation of consulting. I really enjoyed this conversation with Irene, and it was great to get her candid take on where consulting is going and what firms across the industry need to be thinking about as we enter the next decade. So, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Irene Mollestrop. Irene, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. I'm so delighted to be here. And I'm very excited for this conversation. Even just our, our short five-minute chat before the show has thrown up so many topics for us to speak about in the conversation. So I'm looking forward to digging into them with you. To start off, for those who maybe don't know you so well, could you give a quick overview of, of your background and, and how you got to where you are today? 
Absolutely. So quick overview, Russian born, educated in Australia. So quirky thing starts there. I joined a graduate program at Pilkington, which is manufacturing. So I went straight into manufacturing on the on the graduate program, went to Hong Kong, joined a consulting firm there. I fell absolutely in love with management consulting. And I think we'll be talking about, well, that's the whole point of this podcast, right? <laughs> is how great that industry is. From there, KPMG, so one of the big four. Left that, started my own firm called Molten. So I was one of the co-founders with Rory Colfer, who works for Sia Partners too. Sold Molten to Sia Partners, and now I'm the co-CEO of the UK business. Brilliant. That was a, a very succinct, very quick, <laughs> very quick, very succinct rundown, and and gives us lots to to dive into. I'm keen to pick up on all of those different points of your journey and and some of those other bits, particularly around your your passion for the industry. Because I know when you asked me earlier, yes, it's um for my sins, it's also an industry that I quite like. So you've got a fellow fan here. So why don't we start right back at the beginning? We'll, we'll fast forward through to to see you and where you are now. But I'm I'm really interested to to almost start with what it was that made you make the jump into your own business. Because a lot of listeners to this show either do run their own consulting businesses or have aspirations to, not all of them, some are very keen to climb in their consulting firms, we'll, we'll touch on that. But actually, what was it that back in 2003 made you and, and Roy go out on your own? Do you remember who came up with the idea, who approached who, what, what led you to, to launch Malta? Yeah, sure. So Nick, there were two reasons, actually. I mean, it's a really good question. And one was a push and one was a pull. And so, which means one was an internal factor and one was an external factor. So if we start with sort of what was happening back then in 2003 and four, I don't know if you remember back in the day, but... Um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to show my age if I do. <laughs> so what was happening is that system integrator firms were trying to get into the boardroom. So we had PwC and IBM merging together and we had Atos buying up the consulting arm of KPMG and I was at that time at KPMG. So I felt like I went from working very quickly for one of the best, you know, from one of the best consulting firms in the world to a systems integrator firm, which is a completely different proposition. So in real terms, what it meant is rather than focusing on things like doing program management, org design, change management, there was a lot of encouragement slash pressure to sell big systems, okay, because that's what Atos is about. So I hung around for a year and I thought, this is just not where I want to be. You know, I'm pure management consulting. I believe in technology. I believe in the future, but I don't want to be selling big SAP systems mm. every single day. So I think that's the internal push factor for us. And the pull factor was from the market itself, because that was the time where what you and I are calling a transformation now, back then it was change management. It was really quite new and quite fresh and quite sexy and people didn't know what they were doing in that area. And I felt that this was the value add that I could give. We saw a Rory and I saw a niche in the market to create a firm that focused exactly that change management, program management, org design, so the transformation elements. And we thought, right, for better or worse, let's go and do this. So we did. And how did you two come together? Because I always think with co-founded business, that's a, a fascinating story. Was it you were working on a project together and got to know each other? Was it you, you know, you'd been on the same intake at KPMG? How did you two get to know each other and then get to the point where you were comfortable to almost put each other's futures in each other's hands and launch the business together? So we started the business because we got to know each other doing a major transformation program in BAE Systems in the avionics division. And he was doing strategy and I was doing program management and change management. And we, A, we got along and B, we found ourselves having a lot of complementary skill sets that I just mentioned that added real value to the client. And when Atos came along, I guess we were both impacted in the same way because he wanted to do pure strategy at that board level. And I wanted to keep running these large, dirty scale programs that I felt were making a real difference. And um, maybe a little bit naively, we thought, yes, let's go, let's do this, let's see how it works out. And fundamentally, I think on reflection, why I think it has worked out is because we've got complete trust in each other. And I don't think a business can survive. Well, I don't think any relationship can survive without that. I just know he's got my back and I've got his back. And business-wise, 
you know, creating a business is like having a child. It's a very emotional and powerful experience and there's a lot of ups and downs. So you've got to be with someone you trust. And how did you develop that trust? Because obviously, you know, now you've been working together for such a long time, it, it builds, but a bit like you say, like any relationship that comes over time. Do you remember any of the, those early conversations at the local pub in Basildon or wherever it was that you were formulating the idea of how you got comfortable with Rory and, and you know if you know sort of how he became comfortable that you were the person for him to work with as well. Some of it's a bit of luck isn't it it's like how do you meet your kind of life mate or how do you meet your best friend right so some yeah. of it I think was luck it is a bit of the cliche we we did have a napkin at a bar and we did write what we wanted it to be and I think trust develops not in the good times trust develops in the bad times and you know, we are very open with each other and also people in the market that I don't think anyone's made more mistakes in business than Rory and I. But we also have made very good decisions as well. But it was through those bad decisions that you build the trust. You know, we went into countries and started businesses that we had no business doing, like going and starting a business in Hong Kong in 2008 just before the crash and to open a business and then to have to close it and to survive that and to see that you've got that resilience together and one person's down, the other one can lift you up uh, is a very, very big deal to come through that. And, you know, the learning doesn't happen. This is what I tell my kids when they get down. I said, this is actually a gift. This is where the learning is happening. And, you know, the psychological term for that is the dip of despair. And if you can get through the dip and up, that's where the richness is. And certainly we've gone into that dip of despair. And, you know, I can tell you many stories about that. But for purposes of your question is we build trust during in that dip. I really want to jump into, and we will do, all of the, the points you made around mistakes. Because I'm sure there's a lot we can dig into and a lot to learn from there. But I would be uh, remiss if I didn't pick up on the phrase you just used. Because I, I love it. And I think it's that different despair. You, you talked about it for launching your own business. But I think it's really important whether you're you're running a business, launching a business, or, or you know, equally if you're building a career in consulting. Because sure. things go wrong day to day on projects. You know, It could be your clients change their mind. It could be you missed a deadline. It could be you missed promotion. Whatever it is. How do you guide, you know, you mentioned your kids there. So take it as your kids, take it as others in the firm in CNL. How do you help people understand that different despair and get out of it? What Do you have any guidance, recommendation to help people with that? I think that the key to success in any business, whether it's consulting or anything else, is having one thing and it's called resilience. And, you know, over the years, I'm sure you've seen this as well, it's not the brightest, it's not the cleverest, and it's not the most naturally gifted that often succeed. It's the people who are resilient that survive. You know, it is survival of the fittest. You know, one of my favorite books for business, and I'm not sort of a business book junkie, is Richard Branson's Losing My Virginity. And mm. in that, and why I love that is in that, he really shines a light on the areas where he could have succeeded, but he didn't take those opportunities and where he failed and some of the mistakes he's made. And, you know, I, I hear a lot of people saying, I have failed at this and I have failed at that. And I just think the phrase should be, I haven't succeeded yet, right? Mm. And I think it's a mindset. It's about you have failed, keep going, right? Mm. Because 99% of people won't get up and keep going. They just won't, you know, because they'll put other things first, whether it's lifestyle, whether it's just having time to themselves, whether it's wanting to go do something that's less pressured. But if you really want to make it, you got to have resilience and it's kind of as complicated and as easy as that. I, I'm not going to let you get away that easy. Uh, how do you sort of coach people to build that? Because I, I, you know, I, I completely agree with everything you say and have been on a bit of that journey myself. But I, looking back, at, you know, other than go and fail and realize it's not as painful as, as you think it could be, I probably don't have a good answer to give people. How, how do you help people build that resilience so that they're, you know, almost they're prepared to take those risks and trip up on the, on the journey and learn? Well, I think if we look at the consulting industry, I mean, we're in the game of sales, aren't we? That's the bloodline of what we do. If we're not selling projects, if we're not selling our services, like at Seer Partners, we talk about consulting 4.0, which is the new wave of consulting, um, mm. which I can come back to later. 
but it's we need to be in the sales game. And I think a lot of people are scared of sales, yeah. right? They find it a bit dirty. And I think sales is wonderful because what is selling? Selling is influencing. And to influence, you need to have relationships. And to have relationships, you need to build out your network. So I think do sales with pride. And my advice is when people come and say, I put in all my, I heard it this morning actually from a senior manager, I put in all this hard work and I got a no. And I just, I said to him, what I'm going to say to you, it's a numbers game. It's about top of the funnel, right? You're not going to get a yes every time. So if your mindset is, I got a no, I got a no, but there will be a yes along the line because it is top of the funnel. My services are not needed everywhere, but I'm going to listen. I'm going to see where they are needed and I'm going to be out in the market having those conversations. I think it's a huge thing because if you go in saying, I'm going to be rejected, of course you're going to be rejected. There's going to be lots of people who are going to reject you. But I think if you go in again, you know, as I said, with that mindset of lots of people reject me, but I will, you know, be accepted by some, I'll go in and I'll do amazing work and I won't be embarrassed to go sell, then um, you will succeed. And that's resilience, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's not nice to hear no. Completely agree. And, and as we're sort of talking about earlier, I, I've, in the last year or so running Create Engage, I've, I've had a fair few no's. So I, know, I bet. I know exactly what you mean. Actually, that, you know, whether it's sales, whether it's delivery, whether it's promotion, it's that perseverance, isn't it? And and not taking that one no as a defining factor or feature of, of your life or your, you know, what you can bring to the industry. So I, I'll come back to all of that. But I, I just want to touch on, you know, we, we talked about mistakes and and things you learned on the journey of, of growing Molten, which you, you, know, you grew successfully and, and ultimately sold to SEO, which we'll, we'll come back to and, and your transition to the, the CEO now is what were some of those, I guess, both mistakes, but, but also the, the things you did right? You know, looking back for if you were guiding someone else on that journey, what are the things that you did? You'd tell them never do that. And what are some of those things that you'd say, you know, that accounted for the success we sure. had? Yeah. Let me tell you what I think we did right. And then I'll, I'll talk about the things that we did wrong. So in terms of what we did right, when we left KPMG and we started Molten, we were very clear about what Molten was going to be. And I think as an entrepreneur, and you'll probably, you're probably finding that now, it's a binary decision. Do you want to build a firm as a lifestyle business? So what that means is basically you're taking out money out of the business. You're basically just pumping it as a lifestyle vehicle. Or do you want to build it as a capital play? which means that you ultimately have an exit to that. And we were very clear this wasn't a hobby business. We wanted to build it to have value in the marketplace because that's how we measured success, right? And I'm not just talking from a monetary point of view that obviously comes with it, but it's actually impact in the marketplace. That was a big driver for us. When we sold it, we were one of the I would say leading change management and org design firms in the UK. And I think that that's what attracted potential buyers. And we had interest from the big four and obviously CEO partners and others. And because I think you got to stand for something. So that clarity that we had from the beginning of, we are going to have a capital event at the end and build it for that. Because that decision really impacts the behavior you have as a leader. So there were times when we paid ourselves last, there were many, many years where we paid everyone bonuses and took nothing. And if it was a lifestyle business, it would be completely the reverse behavior. We'd be mm. just like cashing it, you know. You shouldn't be ashamed if it's one or the other because they're both very valid choices that you make, but you need to be clear because then the culture of the organization, the operating model and the org design of the business sits under that strategy. So I think mm. we did that very well. I'd like to share with you what we didn't do very well at the beginning, and it was a mistake we kept learning over and over for a couple of years, but certainly I haven't learned it for a long time now, I do this right, is I took for granted what it meant to be a consultant. I thought that if you were a good CFO, let's say in RBS, that would translate to being a good management consultant in the financial services. And it doesn't, you know, because management consulting, 
and I'm guessing a lot of your listeners are listening to this because they're passionate, right? As I am. Management consulting is a discipline that needs to be respected, right? So if you go to your clients and say, I'm a management consultant, that means that you have consulted, that you've got experiences in various industries that you've started and delivered and concluded successfully in various programs and projects, usually globally, right? That's what you're bringing to your clients. And I took for granted at the beginning, and we, Rory and I, recruited amazing industry people who came to us at Moulton. They had no idea about what stakeholder engagement was. And that's actually a discipline that we as management consultants understand, don't we? What is stakeholder engagement? What it is to manage external stakeholders, internal, multidiscipline stakeholders at different levels. They didn't know what it was to do business development. They sold internally their own services, but that's not external, right? That's not external sales communication, what it was like to keep everyone communicated and engaged on a journey. So we learned over a number of years that that was a skill that's not translatable, that we need to have respect for the management consultant discipline. And we didn't recruit non-consultants over the last sort of five, six years of Moulton's life, and certainly not at Seer Partners. So we recruit usually people straight out of uni, from the big four or from the boutique consulting firms. So, and it, it's everything, right? It's, it's really is a success factor for us. Yeah, you gave us a teaser there because I want to come back onto later the, the industry and where that's going because I think there's some, some really interesting points in that. But how did you, you come to that decision? Was it simply a case that you hired a few, like you said, you hired a couple of CFOs and they just, they just didn't work out? Was there, was it sort of one case or was it that sort of over time, that attrition that you said, actually, no, we need to, to make that big decision? It was just too hard to explain to them what consulting was compared to, say, getting someone out of PwC or KPMG, Accenture, what have you, where you had a shortcut to the language. You know, so the shortcut that you and I would have if I said to you, we need to pull together a proposal that's got an approach, you know, Mm. that's got a timeline, costs, develop an approach. We've got to have a couple of options. We'd know what that meant, Mm. right? But explaining that to an industry person that's never had to go and sell something externally is very, very different. So that's what I mean about having uh, respect for the discipline. So that became very clear to us that you got to have consultants in your firm who understand those shortcuts, what is engagement, how to engage, how to go and do business development, who understand the intricacies of developing an operating model, who understand what it is to, you know, roll out a systems, right? And some people just don't have that if they haven't done that before. So it was very clear to us that's what we needed to do to build a firm. How do you teach those skills? So let's say you take the graduates or your junior members of the team who you don't expect to be a finished product. How do you guide them and what advice would you give someone listening who needs to develop all of the skills you just mentioned? So I'll start with a person in the industry who's thinking of going into consulting world, which certainly I did. I was in industry and I fell in love with consulting because I got an opportunity to work with Accenture on a project and I thought, wow, this is definitely for me. The biggest advice I would have is if you're thinking of making the move, go to a big four. Okay, because in the big four, you will get the training, the base level of training to become a consultant. If you go into a smaller firm, let's say a boutique firm, you will find it really, really difficult. And the reason is that if you're in a smaller firm, you don't have the luxuries you do in a bigger firm, like, for example, having large marketing departments, CFO advisory, loads of resources, you will be expected to deliver to do business development, to market the brand, to go out and uh, talk to the various different stakeholders. It will be multi-layered and it might be overwhelming. And I think that the big four are fantastic companies as a breeding ground, okay, for you to get the base level of consulting skills and then go out and join other firms. So that's what I would say for people who are looking to leave industry. For graduates, well, we at SEER Partners take a lot of graduates and interns Mm. and in the UK we've got a hugely successful program like last year we had something like 1600 people apply for four graduate positions wow so that's 
Absolutely. It's wow, isn't it? It's quite How crazy did you the four? for a brand that's not the big four. Yeah. Right. And the same for internship as well. And uh, we've got people, how we select them, we've got people dedicated to going out and working with the London School of Economics, you know, some of the mm. top schools and selecting the right people. So I always say that, you know, I expect everyone coming in to see a partner to be bright. That's almost like a given. But we look for people who are international, who speak different languages. We look for that hunger. You can always tell when there's a bit of hunger, you know, and resilience in a person. And we look for people who really understand what consulting is. They're not just kind of flooding the market with their CVs. Mm. And we put them through, obviously, all the usual kind of tests and screenings and stuff like that. But for graduates, I think they're coming and interns, we offer them a fantastic rotation program. So we've got four areas at SEA Partners here. We've got financial services. We've got growth and innovation, we've got transformation, and we've got energy and utilities. So we basically create an environment where they spend three to four months in each area and they get a feel for consulting. They work with different people. We try and get them out on jobs straight away as opposed to kind of sitting around making coffee, so to speak, and um, they love it. And we have a huge retention rate. At the end of that time, we offer them a job or not, as it happens to be. And um, it's a very successful program for us. We've kept a lot of our grads on. They've become incredible consultants. So that's what we do for them. Fantastic. So I, I, I want to turn a bit more to the the SEER partners part of your, your journey. And we'll, we'll jump back to your, your advice for entrepreneurs a bit later on. And, and it was something you just said in that you'd built the the business to for a capital play, not a, a lifestyle play. And actually, I'm really interested why if you had these offers on the table, what was it about Sea of Partners that, that made you decide that that was the right fit to join and, and ultimately stay with and, and, you know, take a leadership role in the firm as it became? So it's a really good question because I had to do, and Rory had to do a lot of thinking about this because, you know, I don't think it's a secret that when you get bought, you get tied in, right? We're in the, you know, whoever it is is buying an asset you're an asset as a leader and you get tied in. So I knew that for us, it wasn't going to be kind of a, you know, sell and run, you know, so it was very important for us that whoever we went with, that I would be able to spend the time comfortably and enjoyably because a lot of entrepreneurs don't. And this is a fact, you know, there are a lot of entrepreneurs I think you will meet who once they sell, they really go down um, emotionally because it's so different. You've got a boss, you're accountable to someone else, and you lose some of that flexibility, I think, that comes with the sale. We had all the usual suspects take an interest in us. And what we realized is that if we went to a big or let's say where we had some interest from them, we as a firm of say 35 people, 40 people would have been torn apart, right? It is very unlikely that they would have just left us alone. And that would have been very difficult for us emotionally. It would have been difficult for our people. We would have lost our people. And then what would we have, right? And we were looking for a place where we could be tucked in and in many sense left alone to deliver to do what we were doing but do it in a safer environment with a bigger brand and a bigger balance sheet because as when you run your own business at the end of the day I used to be quite proud of this but it ended up being a noose around our necks we had no debt in the company and if you were to ask me kind of what I would do differently if I was doing molten all over again, I would get debt in the company earlier and I would have enabled us to make bigger, bolder moves. But we grew it in a cash positive way. So for us to have a stronger balance sheet at SEA Partners and to have some central services like advisory, like marketing, like social media is everything. You know, it just enables us to go to market quicker. So what SIA offered us was that infrastructure and that support system, but it also enabled us to continue. And one thing I want to say to you is that our global CEO is unbelievable. And I never knew that when we got acquired, I was all ready to sort of 
start hating everything, you know, because I thought, oh my God, this is going to be just horrible, but actually ended up being the reverse. He's very entrepreneurial. He's an entrepreneur himself. He started a firm, you know, 20 years ago, and it's now at about 350 million, you know, turnover. It's not nothing. It wasn't given to him. So he's very entrepreneurial. Number two, he's highly acquisitive. So what does that mean? That means that he builds the firm organically, but inorganically as well. So when he acquires firms, he knows what to do. He leaves people alone to deliver and does deep dive only if you're not delivering. So that's everything to an entrepreneur. And number three, he's extremely visionary. So we are the leaders in consulting 4.0, which basically means that we have a wrap of the traditional consulting services that you and I would recognize, but within the center of it sits data science. We have three data science centers of excellence around the world. So he's extremely visionary. He's very bright and he's highly acquisitive. And that was for us a big decision in going with SEER Partners. You've teed me up again, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bite on it. And I'm interested in terms of you joining the business from the firm you'd set up to coming into a global firm with this this consulting 4.0 model where actually it was it's very different or potentially different from what you had before how, was there and if there was how did you adjust to that and, and almost what are some of those benefits and the things that that let you bring your clients by embracing that global model and, and like you say this consulting 4.0 that you're sort of pioneering as well so the consulting industry is moving to a different model to what we know it to be and where it was so my prediction is that in about 10 years' time, there's going to be 10, maybe $21 billion firms that rule the industry. So the market's going to consolidate. And those are the ones that are going to have the power. And those are the ones that are going to be taking huge advantage of artificial intelligence, augmented intelligence, and all the aspects of data science as we know it. And we ourselves have gone on a journey. So Matthew, our CEO, in his, he does kind of a sprint of three-year plans. So he's taken the firm on the journey. We're in the first year of our next strategic plan. And we had to educate ourselves on what is data science and we started our own centers of excellence. And once we did that, we could cascade that to our clients. So we have people who are pure data scientists developing incredible bots. And so I'll give you an example, you know, for example, we've got this Airbnb bot that actually works in two ways. It targets the hotel industry and it allows the hotels to see real time what the prices of Airbnbs are around them so they can adjust their pricing models. And this is built on incredible algorithms and that's data that's right there that helps you adjust your prices and make strategic decisions. I mean, real value. At the same time, the same bot can also help Airbnb rank their super hosts. I mean, I'm sure you've used Airbnb, uh, you know. Yeah, and average no, user. Exactly. So rank their super hosts, but also super users, right? And again, that is data that is basically, you can base your decisions on that. So previously, where you and I as consultants would go in and people would think we're credible because of our experience, we now go in and say, not only are we credible because of our experience, we've got data, we've got algorithms that we can give you, show you, we'll give you advice and you'll be able to make decisions based on data and our experience. And that's the future. That's the future of consulting. It's data with a wrap of traditional consulting. So consulting isn't going away anyway, it's just changing shape. And what challenges does that present for you as a, a leader of the business? Because you've grown up in a certain, in, in consulting 3.0, you've built a business for those skill sets. And now from what you're saying, there's, there's a whole host of new skill sets. And just, you know, just to throw some questions out, I mean, the first one that I think of is, well, when I was an analyst, you know, part of your job is, is doing what I guess the bots do now. And yeah. so actually, how do you structure that firm and, and let people build those skill sets so that you've got both the, the data science skill set, but also the the traditional consulting skill set to have that wrap around it? I think that you need to do a number of things. So first of all, we've hired new skills. So we've got someone in the UK whose job is dedicated to augmented intelligence. 
Like that's actually his job title. So everywhere we go for all our proposals and all our conversations now have that element to it. So you got to hire those skills in. That's number one. Number two, you got to train people. So we've got the Seer Partners Academy where we offer people various skills. We're actually doing a training needs analysis currently in the UK and we're focusing huge, I mean, it's all about consulting 4.0, upskilling our people. But what I want to say is that I think the natural element is that it won't be for everyone. So some people will fear it and some people will take it on. And it will be that natural selection. But I think my job as a leader is to offer and to create the infrastructure for people to succeed. And certainly a global CEO does that for kind of the leadership set, you know, the, the partners, the senior partners. And it's always in my job to do that for Senior Partners UK. And I have already seen in the last 18 months, we've gone literally from zero to hero. We went out in a very traditional way. And now every conversation we're having, we're talking about augmented intelligence. So I've got a BP client coming in tomorrow and we're doing what we call a lab. So we've got the head of our transformation coming in for half an hour and he's going to have uh, some digital tools and techniques. We've got our augmented intelligence head coming in and he's going to talk about what we've done for some of our clients and we've got our growth and innovation person coming in and he's going to be talking about what we're doing in data that's the way forward because to engage him in a traditional way, you know, it's it's just not enough. It's important, but it's not enough. And how do you find you, because you mentioned around some people will love it, some people won't. You sort of explained the, how you're having to adapt as a business internally. How are you finding the clients are receiving this? You know, and how is that, if at all, changing you the sales approach? Because I think to what you said around consultants having a common language, clients understand, you know, if you say, we'll give you a new operating model or a transformation, they, they get that. When you start using some of the words you just did, that that's new and, and different. You know, do clients get it? Is there a, an education process you're having to go on? And how are you bringing them on that journey? So the need for data and data science is going to happen at two levels. So if, if we look at sort of that commoditized, let's call it in an organization, you know, sort of the lower level, the middle and the upper where data is useful is actually at the upper and the lower. So at the upper level, so the boardroom level, they're pulling for it. You know, so people, leaders want data to help them apply data to help them make strategic decisions. For example, one of our clients, a recruitment firm, they wanted to analyze data of with uh, Brexit coming, how many jobs are going outside of the UK, okay? So we used open source data, so things like LinkedIn, for example, and we developed a bot that analyzed it and showed which jobs were going outside, what was the uptake. That's value add data that goes into the boardroom. So the boards are pulling for this, the leaders are pulling for this. At the lower level, it's about augmented intelligence, helping things do quicker. I mean, in your everyday life, Nick, you'll see this, you know, you log on to buy something, there will be that bit of augmented intelligence in kind of the bot that's chatting to you. That's not a real person, right? But you, it's giving you s several solutions. You go to a supermarket, there's a machine where you swipe through. That's augmented intelligence. You're now doing it with machine thinking. So I think at the bottom level, it's adding masses of value and it's going to be the way forward. It is already the way forward. And at the senior level, it's real-time value-add data that's helping the boards make decisions. And um, what can I say? I think we're seeing it every day that that's the future and it's not to be feared. So I think there's a lot of fear. People are saying that, you know, jobs are going to go away. I absolutely don't believe that. I think we've already got data over the last sort of three, four, five years to say that actually data science is helping to create jobs. Yes, of course, some will go away and we know those groups that are going to be impacted, but there's also an opportunity to create jobs for the future. So I think we have to embrace it. It's not going anywhere. And we got to, as consultants, help our clients and help the industry move along. And for anyone who's listening to this, and also I love the, I've not heard it before, but the phrase augmented intelligence, you hear a lot mm. about artificial intelligence, mm. and, but I, I like, and I, I'm taking it to mean I think, like you said, it's, it's where data and, and analytics and um, algorithms help inform your real or your they human. They help people. Just, yeah, yeah, they help human not... decision making. I guess, yeah, that's the... right. That's right. For anyone listening to this who, who's maybe firm doesn't do this yet, either they want to go out on their own or, or actually also they might 
be keen to stay in their firm and just carve a path towards partnership. What would you be recommending people to be starting to think about or even doing to move towards this space in their in their own business or or as an entrepreneur starting one themselves? I think that most firms out there are doing some really, really good thinking. I think that uh, this kind of concept of consulting 4.0, we probably at CIA Partners have done more. And I think the fact that, you know, we're around 2,000 people and we're more agile has allowed us to do things quicker. But I think everyone's doing some thinking. And I would say to consultants, get on that, like see what's happening in the world of data, see what's happening in the world of crypto, see what's happening in the world of, you know, bot development and artificial intelligence and understand it and talk to your clients about it. Because now the people who are not feel old. And I don't mean in age, it just feels like that kind of very old school traditional consulting where it's bums on seats, let's go in, let's do a fixed price piece of work. And I think that you got to get on these, some of these concepts, you know, like for example, uh, and this is completely different, but it's related in terms of getting on quickly on concepts, diversity and inclusion, right? Were we talking about DNI three years ago? We weren't. Now everyone is talking about it. We're doing incredible things within SEER Partners, both for ourselves and getting propositions out in the space of DNI. So just like data science, I would say that, you know, as humans, we have a natural resistance to new concepts because we just want to be comfy in the old world, but you just can't be. You've got to get on it. And if you're a good consultant, um, you need to be leading your clients, not your clients leading you. Well, and I think that that brings us quite nicely on to the DNI piece. And I know it's something that you're very passionate about. I understand you started Women at SEER Partners uh, as a forum last year. And I guess a bit like you're saying about the the data side and how just the industry is changing. Almost, where has the industry moved to? Where do you think it needs to get to? And almost, what is stopping it getting from where it is now to to where you you see it needing to get to? So, I think that diversity and inclusion, just like CSR corporate social responsibilities are making like leaps and bounds. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, was anyone having like CSR conversations or DNI conversations a number of years ago? We weren't, were we? So, you know, we started a conversation about women and getting gender parity at SEER Partners a year ago in the UK. We started at a local level. We've changed policies. We changed procedures. We changed the way we do recruitment, for example. We put all our ads through kind of a bias lens to see how much what is, it spoke to males as opposed to females and all these incredibly mm. sexy, new, exciting things that you can do yeah. to try and up your game. But a year on, it's gone from number one, local UK to global to um, our CEO committing to numbers to get a certain, you know, number of women into leadership positions. And he's doing that very, very well, actually. We've had a number of new appointments who are all senior women. But it's more than that, because once you look at women, then you look at LGBTQ+. And then once you look at LGBTQ+, you look at BAME. And then you start thinking, okay, well, what are we doing on wellness? You know, mm. so for example, mental health, as of next year, it's compulsory in all workplaces to have a mental health officer, compulsory. And so we're ahead of the game. We just put someone through the training. So now we've got one. So what is super exciting, Nick, right now is that there's this space to have the conversation. And certainly when I was going through kind of, you know, the early part of my career, I didn't know there was a conversation to be had. And when you did hear things like, let's try and get more women or, you know, more international people, what have you, it felt superficial, but now it's real. So for example, at Davos last week, I don't know if you read it, but Goldman Sachs, which is absolutely incredible to me because of all the traditional banks, you know, they are certainly representative of that. So the CEO of Goldman Sachs made a commitment that any new acquisition they do need to have one to two, what they call diverse members of the board. So a woman plus maybe another, and they will not do it otherwise. So I think that it's growing, it's here, those people, even small firms who are not talking about DNI, 
it's almost unheard of now, you know. And I think that the years of kind of the white middle-aged male are gone. It doesn't mean that the women are in the boardrooms yet. And in fact, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But there's a lot to, so last night, for example, I hosted a female progression in the workplace, cheese and wine, cheese and wine night here. We had 10 women from incredible firms, you know, direct and above turn up to have the conversation and who are going to tweet about it later, who are going to put it on their LinkedIn social media. We had a lot to say. It went on for two and a half hours. I had to stop it. But the conversation is here and it's alive and it's um, it's fantastic. And just because you mentioned it, and if it was Chatham House Rules and you can't talk about it, that's fine. But what were some of those challenges that the, the women last night or others you've spoken to previously almost highlight? What is it that's you know, right now preventing women to climb and almost for anyone listening who's in your position, you know, running a consulting firm or, or a practice area that they can be doing to enable, as you mentioned, you know, it's not just women, but diverse groups, not white men, to climb in consulting and, and develop the career they want there. I think the challenge with, if we just talk about women in particularly in consulting is on entry point, there's a 50-50% ratio, right? So it's actually really equal. So the industry can attract women. That's not an issue. But the issue is retention during those kind of what we call make or break years. And that's that sort of 30 to 45 where the demands on a woman are um, multifaceted, i.e. to have a family to uh, go up in their career. If you're in consulting, I think anyone listening to this will know that travel is a key part of being a consultant. And you and I talked about I this. We talked so about it, before. We talked about it earlier. Reasons, uh, I left, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So the challenge is real. So if they can't travel because they've got a newborn and there's a male who can because he's either not married or he's got a stay-at-home wife, it becomes a very natural thing for a woman to fall out. So the conversation we had last night is actually what can we do and what can the men do to retain women in that particular bracket? Because I think that at the senior level, getting women into the boardroom, I think that's now well understood. Although it's not well implemented, it's well understood. The conversation is there and we're doing all we can. But to get you know, women staying in that bracket is a big challenge and there's a lot that needs to happen for us to succeed and not lose women to become stay-at-home mums and therefore lose that talent, that drain that happens when we lose women and therefore lose diversity. And ultimately, it will result in poorer performance for the firm. And it's, I was just thinking back to what you're saying about with a sales funnel, I guess it's the same is that to get more women in the boardroom, you need more women at every level so that they can climb and succeed. And and if you're losing them at that middle layer, that's where if there aren't enough women, it's going to be much harder to, to promote them beyond. And for any women that you, you, know, you mentor here at SEER Partners or you coach, what's your advice as a female role model? You know, you've, you've launched your own consulting firm. You've, you've now run a, a major region for, for a global consulting firm. What, what's your advice for for women in the business or others listening of, of how to get to where you are? So I'm going to be very honest with you. It's a very simple advice, but I found it very hard. And it was advice that was actually given to me when I was a graduate. And I'll just share this with you. I've shared this within the firm at our global seminar. When I came on as a graduate in manufacturing, I found myself surrounded by lots of men on the factory floor. And I was very uncomfortable. I had long blonde hair and, um, you know, I'm quite petite and blonde. And what I did was I cut off my hair and I stopped wearing skirts and I started wearing suits. And I remember that my mentor pulled me in to his office and he said, what have you done? And I said, well, I just want to make sure I fit in. And he said, never, and I mean, never stop being yourself. And that was quite progressive advice, I thought, mm. for back then. That advice has carried me through and now that is almost a given to kind of the Z generation and the millennials. They just, of course, I'm going to be myself, of course, you know, and actually now we celebrate the differences, mm. right? And it starts from the school up, um, you know, like in, in my son's, uh, I've got two boys in their school, one of the core values in pre-prep is everyone is different and they kind of played that back to me. 
So my advice to women is that you don't have to be a man to be successful. And uh, by that, I mean, you don't have to um, sort of adopt male behaviors. You don't have to, you know, fit in. And I never knew that because I tried to and I did. And I just kind of got on with that, you know. But I'll give you an example. We've got an office manager here who went on maternity leave and she wanted to come back part time. And although we only had sort of one FT job, one full time equivalent, for her to come back, she wanted to work three days. What we've ended up doing is taking two part time people and created a 1.2 FTE job to give her the ability to come back and to retain those skills and not to have the drain if she left. So we were flexible in adjusting our job to someone who we wanted to come back. So I think to women, to answer your question, you be yourself and to organizations is treat people as individuals, you know, because everyone will have different cases. Someone will have long-term sickness, you know, so we're doing a big thing around disability at Sea Partners, for example. Someone may not be able to travel for 12 months because they've got a newborn, wait it out, they'll come back, don't lose, because, you know, it costs a lot more to lose a person, get a new person. It costs like 12 months' worth of wages. That's what all the data says, you know, to recruit a new person. So we need to be more flexible and not just lip service. We just need to be more flexible. Fantastic advice. And I, I want to I want to stick with advice quickly and just turn it slightly to, because I know we touched on a bit of the entrepreneurial side. And I think one of the things that has also sort of had its profile raised over the last five years is entrepreneurship. I think it's, you know, we, we talked about my, my failed attempt at a state agency. And, and part of that came from, from seeing entrepreneurs and it looking cool. And I almost, I'd be really interested on, any advice like you know that was that was really powerful for for women and I completely agree on that being yourself piece I'm, I'm fascinated on for those who have heard this some will want to go and start their own firm some won't and actually for those who who want to be entrepreneurs want to grow a business from the inside what is that advice you'd give to those people my advice would be some of it would be the same for those who want to become entrepreneurs I would say understand who your stakeholders are within a firm and there's usually a number of layers, you know, some of your stakeholders would be your peers, some of your stakeholders will be your upper management, some of them will be suppliers, understand who your stakeholders are, and manage them actively, right, and that's a consulting skill, but it's also very applicable internally, that's the advice, you know, you know, as part of kind of what we do in communication engagement, we give our clients manage your stakeholders, understand what they need from you, understand what messages they need to hear from you, get to know them, you know. So I, over the number of years, I've had to listen to a lot of people telling me about their wives and their kids and their hobbies. And that's the personal element that unless you know who these people are, you can't manage them effectively. And I know it sounds a bit Machiavellian. It's not. It's just mm. natural human relations. Yeah. And I would say that's the biggest piece that I can give. And you will see fruits of your labor if you're managing your stakeholders actively because um, making a conscious effort will get you quicker to where you want to go than kind of what we call unconscious competent, right? So being consciously competent about what you're doing is a successful formula. Brilliant. So I want to turn to a, a topic that I know we touched on just before the, the conversation and you, you sort of mentioned a little earlier and actually it's something no one else has ever suggested to me. So I'd love to, to dig into it more and get your, get your take. And, and it was the point you made that actually out of all of the professions, if you like, you talk about law, accounting, uh, banking, yes. consulting is the only one that's, that's not regulated. And, and, and I'd be really keen to, to get your take on, on almost why that's a problem and where you see the industry needing to go. So this is one, Nick, when well, I have a bit of time to do something about, then I certainly will invest my time. But I'm very passionate about the fact that I think that a lot of the backlash that we feel as consultants, you know, there's a budget cut, there's a cost-cutting exercise kind of people get rid of consultants. If when consultants come in, I don't think that they're held in as high regard as they should be as professionals as say, for example, lawyers coming in or accountants coming in or bankers coming in. Mm -hmm. So if we think about what just the ones that you've mentioned, banking, accounting, law has that we in the consulting industry don't, 
it's regulation. So accountants do chartered accounting. Uh, bankers have got their own regulations that they always have to stay on top of. Law has the bar. And so what happens is they do their kind of a formal training and then there's an industry regulation. We as consultants do not have that. In fact, we have the reverse. We have anyone who's anyone being able to call themselves management consultants and it's okay. So for example, if someone has been in industry for 30 years and they were amazing operations manager, they've retired at the age of 50, 55, and they think, oh, I've got another 10 years left in me. I'll just leave that industry, let's say energy, and I will call myself a consultant and I will make my kind of second wave of career that way. They're not a consultant. They're a contractor with industry experience. And that is a problem for me because I think that if we were regulated and we had to go through the same checks and bounds, we could actually do a number of things. A, we could increase fees for the services that we charge the industry would attract better and better people. There would be a standard for what you needed to be a consultant. For example, you need to have at least five years experience in the field. You need to run a couple of multi-layered global programs. You need to have a grad and a post-grad. I mean, I'm just riffing here, but there's a standard. And mm. I think that the quicker we move to that, the better it will be for the industry as a whole in terms of professionalizing it. There's no question in my mind about that. Why do you think we haven't? What's, what's held the, the industry back? I really don't think that management consulting is on the forefront of being newsworthy. Yeah. Okay. So if you read the paper, the, um, you know, the opinion pieces, they'll, they'll interview sort of, you know, bankers, let's say lawyers, not so much, but, you know, bankers, people who are subject matter experts, maybe in accounting, maybe to do with tax, so-and-so given his or her advice. I think traditionally consultants have been more reactive to things happening in the market. And I think with, you know, this kind of fourth industrial revolution that we're so lucky to be a part of that we've touched on with data science etc we have a real opportunity to make a difference and actually be in the forefront and actually do do some of the opinion pieces and projections about where the future is going you've got this amazing thing called data that we can um, use and apply to construct our views and opinions so i think that's the reason why we haven't because we haven't been at the forefront Sadly, I don't think we're going to have time for the conversation all about sales. And I always say to guests, there might be around two in a few years. So watch this space. Watch this space. But, um, how do you help clients understand that? Because there's a, there's a core part in there about the value that you bring over a, a contractor, because I'm sure you must have had someone say, well, Irene, your day rates are this high. I'm oh, going to get goodness. a contractor for yes. you know, a half, a quarter, whatever it might be. How do you help clients see that value and understand what you bring over, you know, just 10 contractors as opposed to 10 CEO partners, consultants working together? Do you know that conversation of you guys are expensive. I mean, you can imagine, right? Every consultant, I'm sure, has had that conversation. My answer usually is yes. Yes, we are. And these are the reasons. And um, because we're experts, because we have done this 10 times before across all industries, because we've been successful. But most of all is because we get our clients promoted. That's one of the absolute things that we must do as consultants is make our clients successful because what we want to be doing as consultants is leading from the back. Our consultants need to be leading the change. So are we expensive? We're not cheap. Should we be ashamed of that? No, we shouldn't because this is coming back a full circle. It's, you know, to be a consultant is something to be proud of. It's a fantastic industry that attracts the cleverest and the brightest, and you have this complete privilege of doing projects across a range of sectors, and how interesting is that? Well, I, I think that's a, a brilliant place to cap that one off, and I've got just two last questions, and these are questions I ask every one of my guests, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting your opinion on them, and then I'll, I'll let you get on with the rest of your day, because I know sure. you're a busy one ahead. So the first one, and you, you mentioned you're, you're not an avid reader of books, but you, you mentioned about that earlier, and it's, it's actually to get your take on it, if books isn't the, the one for you, mm. resources, but ultimately... It's something I ask all my guests, which is looking back through your journey, be it with, with Moulton or where you are now with SEER Partners, what is the, the book or article or, or just thing that's had the biggest impact 
on you or that you found yourself giving out or advising others to to read or to look at most often in that journey? So I think people right now take the information in very different ways, mm. you know. So we've got this luxury of if, if you don't like reading, which I do, by the way, it's just a time thing, then you can listen to podcasts as we're yeah. doing now. You can go online and have quick kind of bite-sized pieces and you, you we, consume, we consume information in very different ways. I think what is not good to answer uh, the same question but in a different way is using loads and loads and loads of resources to learn from other people's mistakes. I think there's something called overlearning. And I think you need to get a few. So for example, I talked about kind of losing my virginity. And I also, one of the ones that had a really big impact on me, which is not a business book, but it's called The Dark Side of Camelot about the Kennedys and what went wrong there politically. And it's all about relationships that nearly brought us to be on the brink of the Cold War with Russia and uh, America, that is. And, you know, you pick your resources and you say, okay, this is what I've learned and now I'm going to leave it. And I'm going to have enough guts to make my own mistakes. And, you know, as we talked about going to the dip of despair and come out and, and learn from them and never make that again. So I think there's a lot of resources out there. There's a lot of blogs, podcasts, good ones like this and uh, a lot of books and you you got to pick and then you got to make your own decisions and build on that. And I, I've got to ask it just because of, of the way you frame that because I really like what you said about, I do agree, I think people can read almost, you can learn so much and you can you be- You can overlearn. You can overlearn. Mm. And actually, how do you advise people at Seer Partners now to almost, what, what is it that lets people know they've learned enough? Is there a sort of, how can people get that sense that actually, no, I should go and put this into practice? Is it a sense or is it just they've, they've got to try it and- and get into that dip of despair if it doesn't go right. You know what? It's just self-belief. I think that a lot of people, I had this conversation again today with someone that was saying, oh, I've got a blind spot. I don't know what I don't know. Well, we all don't know what we don't know, you know, sometimes. And I think you just got to have the self-belief that you know enough, you know, and you're going to go out there and you're going to talk confidently about, you know, your craft and believe in yourself because again you know I see this I'm sure you see this as well that sometimes it's the people who have that kind of self-hype that make it if I can use a music reference DJ Khaled you know <laughs> um, who is a you know another one um, so DJ Khaled I mean is he you know to, to end on a very random note is he the most talented person in the music industry maybe because he's done something so fundamentally creative he uses other people's talent whether it's you know j-lo or whoever mm. to build music around them is he the most talented probably not but his talent lies in self-belief right and so you know that's your random one not to use a consulting one but to use music which i'm sure we all love yeah well and it, it, it is the the first time dj khaled has been mentioned on the show so you, um, you get that you're accolade. welcome <laughs> <laughs> well I, I, and um I, I don't usually open this one up we have time so i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna do it. it is i think there's something really interesting in that almost of that that difference between school and and work and, and this might be something you deal with or help your graduates understand because I think one of the biggest challenges and our industry is really guilty of it is people who come into consulting are usually really smart you mentioned you know bright is a given yeah given but actually that comes with a whole host of of almost hang-ups because you've got A's throughout your life you've you've succeeded and success becomes getting an A and actually there's a huge mindset shift to say, I don't need an A. And like you say, actually, the, the people who make it to the top aren't necessarily the brightest. I don't think, if I think of all of my guests, and this is, hopefully none will be offended, it's, it's not they're all rocket scientists. They've all no. got the drive and, and determination. And like you said, they're just, they've done a DJ Khaled. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to coin that no, for you. No, um, it's good. It's good. It's a good analogy, I think. But how do you help people understand that? Is there anything that people can start doing at that graduate stage or in the internships to start getting comfortable with, with that failure that lets them be okay with not being the best, but persevering to get there? Well, I think as leaders, as corporates, we need to be able to create the conditions for people to succeed and to fail, and it'd be okay. We do the same thing as parents for our kids. So I think that's absolutely right to do in business. And certainly my boss has demonstrated that, you know, sometimes the business is hugely, you know, having a fantastic run. And sometimes, for example, last year in the UK, across all industries, things were slower because of Brexit and because of election. So having a long-term view 
and putting pressure, but just the right amount of pressure is important because people will never operate in fear, right? They'll never do their best in fear. So I think as leaders, we need to be able to set the boundaries for people to succeed and fail within a safe condition. And I think for people themselves, they need to be able to take chances and take risks and not wait for some magic bullet because, you know, no one knows better than you. Yeah, I, I, I love it. And I think that I really like what you say there about creating the conditions for success and failure and letting people decide and, and choose to test and see where they go from there. And actually, it brings us nicely into the final question. And, and this is, it may be a repetition of some of the things you've said. And, and I think we, we nicely warmed up for it there. But this is really your advice. And it's a chance to, to recap or to really sort of drive home key points. And it's quite simply, you have three people in front of you. One is at the start of their career, a graduate. One is, I say four to five years in, but I'd, I'd call it a manager level consultant. So anywhere from probably six to eight, I'm underselling them. Anyone who makes manager at four has done very well, I think. And the final one is someone who's approaching partner or, or where you were when you, you set out to launch Molten. And, and the, the simple question off the back of the long buildup is, is what is your one piece of advice for each of those people? I will say that I've got the same advice for all three, and I'm not cutting corners, it is actually the same piece of advice. And it's all I can do is say what's worked for me. And, um, you know, I find myself through this podcast in a very interesting position of talking rather than listening, but I'm usually you, I'm usually on the other end asking clients to talk about themselves. In fact, in sales meetings, I say, just, just talk to me, what is, you know, what's going well and not so well. And that's how you open a business conversation. And my advice to all three would be, you know, for graduates, go in and listen. I know you've come out of, you know, LSC or LBS or Harvard or wherever, and academically you're on top of the heap, but you're in many ways starting again. You're in the business world. And as I said, you know, we know you're smart. Lots of people are. Just listen, listen to the what's working, listen to how things work in the culture. To the middle manager, listen if you want to progress to what is it that has made people who have succeeded in senior positions successful. Go talk to them and, and listen more than you, than you talk. And to people about to make partner, it's the same piece. It's actually listen to the graduates because you don't always know better than them. I don't like people dismissing young people and saying, oh, you know, it's a generation Z, it's a millennial, they're snowflakes, they're this. No, they've got important things to say. They're the future and we've got to listen to them. So listen to them, listen to your peers and um, listen to the board because they will be very clear on what they want from you when you're promoted. Fantastic, Irene. Well, I think that is a great place for us to finish today. So thank you so much for, for giving your time. For anyone who wants to find out more about yourself, wants to find out more about SEA Partners and, and what you're doing with Consulting 4.0, where would you point them to? Where can they, they get in touch? Uh, well, they can Google me, Irene Wolotov, number one, number two, LinkedIn, and number three, of course, a wonderful SEA Partners website that talks about the, what we do and our services and sectors. And um, yeah, be delighted to, uh, to be there and to answer questions. Fantastic, Irene. Well, thank you very much. And all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.